Bible, Psalm 72 is where we are studying tonight. Messiah's glorious reign is what I've titled the, the message here. A little bit of introduction before we get into the psalm. Psalm 72 is uh, clearly one of what is called a royal psalm. And it is also a messianic psalm, even though it's not mentioned in the New Testament. Now, as I said this morning, normally, in order to be classified as a messianic psalm, uh, it would have to be a psalm that uh, prophetically speaks of the Messiah and then is referenced in the New Testament. Well, we don't have that situation with Psalm 72. Uh, how do we explain this? Why do we call it a Messianic psalm if it's not referenced specifically in the New Testament? Well, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In order for a New Testament book uh, to be considered inspired, it had to be written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. That was the criteria. It was a leading criteria as far as the early church considering what, if a book should be considered inspired or not. Uh, Jesus said uh, the Spirit would guide the apostles into all the truth, a definite body of truth in John 16, 13. We believe on their word, he said in John 17, 20. So uh, what about Hebrews? Every every book in the New Testament is accounted for in this way. It's written by an apostle or a close associate. For example, Matthew, the apostle wrote Matthew. Uh, Mark, the close associate of uh, Peter, uh, wrote Mark. Luke, the close associate of Paul, uh, got his information from a whole host of associates of the apostles. Uh, and uh, like I say, he was close associate with Paul. John the Apostle wrote the Gospel, and, and so forth. We go through the New Testament. But what about Hebrews? You know, we don't know for sure who wrote Hebrews. You say, well, I'm pretty sure it was Paul. Well, yeah. You know, you, you really study this. There are good reasons to believe Paul wrote Hebrews, and there are good reasons to think he didn't. And scholars look at both of these sides of the ledger here, and some people get really dogmatic one way or the other. Truth of the matter is, we just don't know for sure. I think it was undoubtedly an apostle, somebody that knew the apostles. Uh, it talks about uh, our brother Timothy in Hebrews 13, uh, 23. Uh, Timothy was certainly a close associate of Paul. But we just don't know for sure. But yes, all are agreed that Hebrews should be in the inspired canon. Uh, well, how come? Well, because the contents are so clearly aligned with the rest of New Testament truth. The internal evidence is overwhelming. As one writer says, it manifests the peculiar glory of God in Christ to his people. And another says it bears the essential apostolic deposit. And it is seen as self-authenticating the glory of Christ. And so it is with Psalm 72. It's not specifically referenced in the New Testament, but its internal content is so clearly messianic that indeed it is properly classified as a messianic psalm. Well, let's get into it. Psalm uh, 72. Uh, at the top, we have the superscription, a psalm of Solomon. Now, this uh, superscription uh, is debated as far as does this mean it is written by Solomon or is it written by David about Solomon? And one of the reasons people, you know, J. Vernon McGee says, you know, I don't think it was written by Solomon because he says at the end of the chapter, it says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse are ended. So settles it for him. You know, David wrote this, it wasn't Solomon. Uh, 
Well, most commentators think Solomon did write it. And so how do we account for this statement at the end of the psalm? Well, we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, Most think Solomon probably wrote it and cataloged it in reference to the writings of David, uh, which make up the majority of the writings in the second book of the Psalms. Uh, Understand that Psalms really was comprised of five different groupings of books that were put together uh, in one large book of Psalms, but there's really five uh, groupings of books in there. And this is the end, uh, this is the conclusion of the second grouping. And so perhaps Solomon is simply noting that David wrote the lion's share of the, uh, of the writings. Uh, who knows? Solomon is credited with writing two psalms, however, uh, namely uh, Psalm 72 here, as well as Psalm 127. Now, many believe that Psalm 72 may have, may have had its occasion in the coronation of King Solomon. It speaks, uh, perhaps, uh, and most agree here, most think this is really talking about Solomon's reign, but ultimately speaks of the Messiah's universal reign, which is really undeniable at certain points here, as you will see as we go through this. So as such, it addresses the son of David, small s, as seen in King Solomon, but then it also speaks to the greater son, capital S, the greater son of David, as seen in the Messiah. And by the way, the Davidic covenant, if you break it down, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 really addresses both. Addresses both Solomon as well as the Messiah. Uh, let's look at an outline here. Oh, we got it up there. Messiah's justice for seven verses. Messiah's dominion. Messiah's compassion. And Messiah's glory. Let's get into the psalm itself. Verse 1. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. Solomon's request for judgments and righteousness is really a request to discern and apply justice in keeping with what is right to his kingdom reign. And that's very reminiscent of the wisdom that Solomon asked the Lord for at the beginning of his reign. Remember in uh, 1 Kings 3, 9, he's asking for this. God says, "What, what, what would you like me to give you? And here's what his request was. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? So he asked for wisdom, really, uh, to be able to discern, an understanding heart to to judge properly. Now, it is noteworthy that the the Targum, uh, which is an ancient Aramaic paraphrase of the Old Testament, adds the word Messiah to the king here in verse 1. Uh, the Jewish rabbis very definitely, and, and uh, some of the, the guys who deal with the ministry to Jews really emphasize this, that the, the Jewish rabbis here in this psalm definitely saw this as portraying the coming Messiah and his glorious reign. Verse 2, he will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Now, William McDonald's makes a great statement at this point. He says, Every one of the he wills or he shalls in the rest of Psalm 72 will become fact when the Redeemer sets up his resplendent reign. So in other words, he says ultimate fulfillment of the he wills uh, really finds its complete fulfillment ultimately in the Messiah. Verse 3, the mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. Now often in the scriptures, mountains... 
are symbolic of representing governing authorities. So perhaps mountains here represents national government, while little hills represent local government. Messiah will rule the world in all phases, and the government will represent his rule. Note in verses 2 and 3 the repeated emphasis on righteousness, which is indicative of ultimately Christ's reign, and really is even reflective in uh, the word Melchizedek. Uh, Christ is a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness, which is what defines Jesus Christ ultimately. Verse 4, He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and break in pieces the oppressor. Now the poor in this world are often the most vulnerable and often denied justice. But Messiah's reign will put an end to this mistreatment. The oppressor, those that are qualified by being oppressors, and of course uh, I think the chief oppressor is the devil himself, uh, they will be destroyed, uh, will break in pieces the oppressor. And of course at the coming of Christ, the devil is going to be uh, put in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. He'll oppress no one at that point. And uh, the, the oppression that's been being dished out by his agents will be brought to an end. In G, indeed, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. And he will bring universal peace uh, to the world. Verse 5. There, or they shall fear you as long as the sun and the moon endure throughout all generations. Boy, this is a long time. Once the Messiah step, sets up his kingdom... The fear of him will carry the day for the duration of the present heaven and earth throughout all generations. However, some think that verse 5 should be translated differently. Moody Bible Commentary says, It is preferred to follow the LXX, which is the Septuagint, which reads, May he continue while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. Thus, Verse 5 is calling for the establishment of an eternal king whose reign would last as long as the sun and the moon. On the other hand, the Bible Knowledge Commentary says, preferable to the words he will endure from the LXX is the translation, you will be feared from the Hebrew. Well, taken that way, the verse refers not to the human king, but to God who endures throughout all generations. Either way, uh, the idea is an enduring rule that speaks ultimately to the Messiah, Messiah God, whose rule continues throughout all generations. Verse 6, He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish, and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. The Messiah will usher in the refreshing times of a golden era, an era of peace and prosperity. The righteous will flourish, and this will continue on as long as the moon is in place. In other words, until the new heavens and the new earth. And it will just continue on for the duration. Note the repeated emphasis on peace, verse 3, here again in verse 7. Jesus, as the Messiah, again, is the Prince of Peace. And we read about this, and we know these verses well, in Isaiah chapter 9, 6, and 7. We read there, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. 
His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, it will just continue to go on and on. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. David was a man of war. But Solomon's reign was characterized largely by peace, which is a fitting type of Christ. And there's tremendous emphasis on the kingdom and and peace that will be experienced there. In Isaiah 32, the work of righteousness will be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peace, peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Doesn't that sound wonderful? I mean, the word peace is a beautiful word in Hebrew. I mean, it's the word shalom. Even the sound of the word is soothing, isn't it? Shalom. Uh, I have a brother here at the church. Uh, we, we usually greet each other this way. He always says shalom to me, and I say shalom back, of course. Uh, shalom. Uh, when you go to Israel, that's what everybody says, shalom. Coming and going, shalom, shalom. It's a beautiful greeting. Uh, simply means peace. It's, it's the idea everything is as it should be. And that's what will define Messiah's reign. Until the moon is no more. Verse 8. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, this certainly goes beyond Solomon. Solomon controlled more territory than any other king. That's true. But it was nothing in comparison to what's described here. Nothing in comparison to what Messiah will have dominion over. You see, his dominion, the Messiah's dominion, will be universal. From sea to sea means from the Mediterranean Sea uh, to the sea on the other ends of the earth, whatever sea that might be. Uh, In Hebrew thought, the river was the Euphrates, and to the ends of the earth depicts a, a rule that's worldwide. This verse clearly goes way beyond Solomon and finds ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah's glorious reign. By the way, all the way through this psalm, while picturing Solomon in a limited way, it ultimately does have the Messiah's glorious reign as the complete fulfillment. Let me uh, bring up a map at this point, and uh, you can see here territory uh, of Israel before David, before it became king. So they had a little bit of territory, area conquered by David uh, and inherited by Solomon. So, you know, you got a larger area. But uh, then the area under strong economic influence of Solomon, uh, this whole area here, it was extended by Solomon. Like I say, he had the largest area that was ever controlled by the kings there. But uh, long ways here. I mean, here we got the Euphrates. But uh, to the ends of the earth, I don't, think, I don't think this is to the ends of the earth. Do you think so? From the Euphrates to the ends of the earth? Is that the end of the earth? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, it's going to go a lot further than that, to the ends of the earth. Uh, verse 9. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations, all nations shall serve him. So in view here is the Messiah's absolute reign over all. 
the ungovernable, so to speak, nomads, it's kind of hard to control them out there in the, you know, the desert wilderness area, but they'll bow before him. His enemies will experience humiliating defeat. They will be licking the dust. They're going down, as it says in Psalm 110. Uh, his enemies will be made his footstool. From the perspective of Israel, Tarshish represented the places farthest west, meaning usually we think Spain or, or places uh, Spain and beyond. And the kings of these far-off isles will bring presents in honor and worship to the Messiah King. The kings of Sheba, modern-day Arabia and Yemen, and Seba, part of modern-day Africa, they will also come bearing gifts. And then we have this catch-all phrase in verse 11, which says, all kings will come bowing down in worship and obeisance. Yes, all nations shall serve him. And that's consistent with prophecy. Uh, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, I have a very significant prophetic verse. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, most scholars think that that word Shiloh means to whom it belongs. The sense, then, is that the scepter, the right to rule, belongs to the tribe of Judah, of which Christ came from the tribe of Judah. And it will remain there until the one comes to whom it ultimately belongs, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. At his second coming, obedience will define the people. I mean, he will rule with a rod of iron. When he comes to rule, the people will obey him. Yes, in the kingdom, all nations, all nations shall serve him. So in verse 8, we see his dominion will be to the ends of the earth. And now in verse 11, we see that all nations shall serve him. Thus, the Messiah's rule will be all-encompassing, with the entire world being subject to his reign. Verse 12, for he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. Now, in the Messiah, the downtrodden have a mighty deliverer. In the kingdom, poverty will vanish. No more will the abused of God's people languish in misery. In the kingdom, it will be clear that the lives of these downtrodden people who knew the Lord are precious to him. This is the meaning of, and precious, precious shall be their blood in his sight. They matter. And they matter, and the kingdom will prove it. David Gazik says, The lives of the poor and needy are often considered to be of little value. The Messiah, the greater king, will regard their lives as precious. Verse 15, And he shall live, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. The ESV translates, And he shall live as long may he live. It's essentially the equivalent to uh, that sentiment expressed in long live the king. The saved kingdom citizens will love the kingship of the Messiah. And their ador adoration of him will be expressed in the finest gold of Sheba being brought and given to him. 
So his prayer and praise will continually be offered up with him in view. Dan Bergman says the Hebrew word translated for in this verse is also translated a number of times with the English word through. Uh, Prayer will be offered through him. Of course, I mean, that's how we pray. We pray in Jesus' name today. Uh, And so perhaps that is the nuance there. Verse 16. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth. On the top of the mountains, its fruit shall wave like Lebanon. And those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. What's pictured here is a time of great fertility and fruitfulness in the earth. And that's what will define the kingdom. It will be a time of indescribable flourishing. In ancient times, prosperity was measured in terms of gold, grain, and fruit. The kingdom will bring about great prosperity. We have verses like this, like in Amos chapter 9, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. It's coming. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper. Uh, what? You're not finished harvesting? Get, get out of the way. We got, we got to plow for the next crop here. And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. Picture of overabundance. I mean, this is what it's going to be like in the kingdom. Verse 17. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Now in verse 15, we have the sentiment, long live the king. And here in verse 17, it says, his name shall endure forever. You see, this king is not going anywhere. His reign will be forever. His name is all that he stands for. It's his person. Uh, you know, you got a lots of rulers in this world, but, but they don't stick around, right? In fact, I often think about this statement from uh, John uh, Chrysostom. Uh, If you knew how quickly people would forget about you after your death, you will not seek in your life to please anyone but God. (laughs) You know, you think about it. How many of your ancestors do you remember? I mean, okay, 50 years ago. How about 100 years ago? 200 years ago? I mean, it's all a blip, you know. But what matters is what matters before God because God never forgets. People come and people go. Leaders come and leaders go. And they think they're really making their mark. Charles Spurgeon said, We see on the shore of time the wrecks of the Caesars, the last remnants of the Ottomans, Charlemagne, Napoleon, how they flit like shadows before us. They were and are not. But Jesus forever is. And that's what the Bible says, right? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thomas Eisen, Timothy Demi write, Throughout its history, the world has known many kingdoms, dynasties, and empires. They have risen and and fallen, blowing across the pages of history like leaves on an autumn day. Some have been spectacular and adorned with splendor. Others have enslaved and slaughtered populations. Regardless of how we remember them, they all share the same common denominator. They are all temporary human leaders who are here for a moment, and then they are gone. How true that is. 
Solomon recognized that not only in the Messiah would there be the fulfillment of God's promise to David, uh, one that would sit on his throne eternally, as seen in the Davidic covenant, but also the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, You see, God there in that Abrahamic covenant promised Abraham that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed, which is ultimately fulfilled through the Messiah, who is both the son of Abraham and the son of David. Genesis 12, 3, we have that promise. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In the Messiah, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed, and all the nations shall call him blessed. Verse 18, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things, or who alone does wondrous things. Because of what God does in the kingdom, he is to be blessed, which is to say praised. Blessed be the Lord God, Uh, Lord here is Yahweh, meaning the unchanging, eternal God who is ever faithful. He's ever faithful because his character never changes. And uh, God here is Elohim, meaning the supreme, most high one. This is the God of Israel. The God of the Bible has gone to great lengths to reveal himself in the context of history. From Genesis 12 forward, he has done so in conjunction with two distinct witness programs. The first is Israel, and the second is the church. However, first and foundational is Israel. Paul tells the largely Gentile church, by background, that you are grafted in, and that the root, the Jewish heritage, supports you, Romans 11. The one true God has revealed himself in history through the nation of Israel. And then building on that revelation through the church. Now in the Bible, God reveals himself as the God of Israel. 203 times. 203 times the God of Israel. Makes a major point of it all the way through the scriptures. When Moses asked God what his name was, God identified himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You know what that is to say? I'm the God of covenant relationship in relationship to the Jews. And building on that, he said his eternal name is, I am. The eternal name of God is thus identified with this people group called Israel. Never is God called the God of any other particular ethnic group. In terms of a nation, he is the God of Israel, uniquely so. He is bound to this nation by covenant and has uniquely chosen to reveal himself to the world via this people group. Whether in blessing or in cursing, Israel is God's unique witness nation. The God of Israel is the one true God. This is the God of the Bible. In the Exodus, God dramatically revealed himself through Israel's deliverance. I mean the Exodus was a a major, major uh, marker in the history of the world. And this event became an ongoing major testimony to the one true God. The Passover, which commemorates it, is the oldest continually observed feast in the world, being observed now for over 3,500 years. Building on this, a covenant relationship with Israel was established at Mount Sinai. 
He gave them the law and the priesthood. Then his Shekinah glory led his people in their wilderness journey. He brought them to the promised land. I mean, for 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. I mean, you didn't have to go down to Walmart. It was all good. I mean, everything's just keeping on, keeping on here. God took care of them. And then he gave them the prophets and sign miracles that confirmed their ministries. He dwelt among them in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Repeatedly, God showed himself to be the one true sovereign God in relation specifically to this people Israel. Prophetically in relationship to this people Israel. God revealed very clearly that Judah would be taken captive to Babylon for 70 years and then would be brought back to the land. It happened. This was revelation, but is also history. In the fullness of time, God sent forth the promised Messiah in accordance with prophecy. Salvation is of the Jews, but then the Jews rejected their Messiah. The Messiah then, in accordance with Old Testament prophecy, predicted a worldwide dispersion for the Jews. And he also indicated a last day's return to the land, initially in blindness, in accordance with Old Testament prophecy. All of these realities have been a matter of revelation and now history in relation to Israel. Furthermore, God promises in the last days to glorify himself before the whole world in conjunction with preserving and delivering his people Israel, the nation of his choosing. You want a proof of the God of the Bible? Look to Israel. Prophecy has consistently been fulfilled in relation to Israel to the letter in dispersion as well as in regathering. They are his unique witness nation. Truly, the God of the Bible is the God of Israel, and he is to be blessed, as it says here. For he does wondrous things for Israel and really for the entire world through Israel. He brought the scriptures to the world through Israel. He brought the Messiah into the world through Israel. And he will bring the kingdom into the world, in essence, through Israel. As the Messiah returns to set up his headquarters in Jerusalem. When it says of God, who only does wondrous things, the ESV translates this, who alone does wondrous things. Yes, God alone is the supernatural God who does wondrous things in fulfillment of prophecy in relationship to Israel, in relationship to the Messiah, and in relationship to the kingdom, which is the point of emphasis in this chapter. And so verse 19 says, And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. As said earlier, the book of Psalms is divided into five books. It breaks down like this. Oh, can you see that? It's a little dark there maybe. But uh, Psalm 1 through 41, the book 1. Psalm 42 through 72, book 2. This is what we're finishing out here tonight. Book 3 is Psalm 73 through 89. Book 4, Psalm 90 through 106. And book 5, Psalm 107 through 150. Each one of these books ends with a doxology or a song of praise. And the doxology for the second book is found right here in Psalm 72, 18, and 19. This doxology looks to be fulfilled in the kingdom, 
when indeed the whole earth will be filled with God's glory. I think you can say that even now on, on one level, uh, but uh, in, in, a, in the sense that uh, of the Messiah's glorious reign, this looks to the future. Notice what we see in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This looks to fulfillment in the kingdom. And then we come to verse 20. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is probably to be taken as a postscript by Solomon, which is reflective uh, on the fact that the second book of the Psalms as a whole uh, were written principally by David. That's a very common view. Uh, Psalm 7220 is, is evidently reflective uh, of this. But we want to note that, uh, you know, when it says are ended, it doesn't mean that David didn't write any more psalms after this one. In fact, he did in the other collections, in, in book number three, four, and five. So he wrote a lot of other psalms after, after this one. However, William MacDonald presents another view. He says, quote, A more plausible explanation is that the predicted reign of the Lord Jesus Christ represents the ultimate fulfillment of his prayers. The kingdom described in the preceding verses was the subject of David's last words, 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 4, and was the event toward which his prayers were directed. When the Messiah would take his place upon the throne and rule, David's desires would be fully met. Well, that perhaps is true as well. The kingdom ruled over by the Messiah as held out in Psalm 72 is what God's people down through the ages, have longed for. And what we are praying for, your kingdom come. One commentator says, the world is upside down, inside out, sideways, crazy nutso. Bad is good, up is down, left is right, right is wrong, evil is good, insanity is sanity. Abnormal is normal, circles are squares, common sense is uncommon, dissent is hate, diversity means conformity, The good guys are the bad guys. Debauchery is glorified and the holy is debauched. Yeah, that's pretty much where we live. But one day, one day, as we see in Psalm 72, the Messiah is going to come and everything's going to change. Instead of injustice, justice will reign. Instead of oppression, there will be deliverance. Instead of languishing, there will be flourishing. Instead of poverty, there will be prosperity. Instead of war, there will be peace. Instead of rebellion, there will be submission to the king of kings. And so as God's people, we say, even so come, Lord Jesus. Indeed, as the psalmist here writes, Solomon, Psalm 72, 19, Blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.